You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday at 9 a.m. for small groups, 10 a.m. for worship, or anytime at asburybosier.org. Good morning. Uh, today we conclude our series on the faith of Abraham, well, the almost faith of Abraham. Uh, first, we had the story of uh, Abraham leave everything behind and go to the land where I will, I will show you. And Abraham did that, but there's always kind of a catch. Abraham brought Lot with him. Brought, uh, Abraham also uh, brought his slaves and all of his possessions. And so he had, he had a bit of capital with him. He had a bit of a safety net with him. Faithful Abraham made sure he was insured on the way out of Ur from the, of, of the Chaldeans to where God is going to show him. And then uh, the week after that, uh, the power was out. Uh, and everything blew up, so we we didn't meet. Uh, but that that sermon would have been on Hagar and Ishmael and the tragedy of Abraham sending Hagar and Ishmael out with a little bit of bread, a little bit of water, sending them to their demise. It's a rough, difficult story. Also, uh, uh, with that, uh, it comes to mind uh, during that same storm, uh, prayers for Corey. Uh, Corey had a tree go right through his apartment, so uh, he understands when Abraham had to pack up all the stuff and like go to another location. That's exactly where Corey is right now. So prayers for you, Corey, uh, uh, and your dogs uh, who are also living with you currently in, in your vehicle and around town and all the things. So if you see Corey, bring dogs. Don't get anything for him, but bring something for the dogs when you see them uh, uh, out and about. And then the week after that, we talked about this really interesting exchange between Abraham and Sarah. These three visitors come to visit Abraham, and, and Sarah is laughing uh, at this news that she is going to have a child. And her laughter is actually, uh, it's kind of a confession on Abraham's part, because the, the visitors, the angels, the guests say, Wait, Sarah, why is Sarah laughing? Abraham, have you not told Sarah about any of this? Hmm. So now we conclude this series of the almost faith of Abraham with the almost sacrifice of Isaac. Fun little story. Um, uh, I, I think it was, I think it was Anna, one of my kids, I think it was Anna Lee, uh, a youth group a couple years ago. Uh, at lunch, we always ask, like, hey, how was Sunday school? Like, what did you learn about? And Anna Lee said, oh, we learned about the sacrifice of Isaac. I said, well, the, the almost sacrifice of Isaac. And she said, what? I said, no, Abraham didn't sacrifice Isaac. It was, the, it was the almost sacrifice of Isaac. And unfortunately, she had like gone to the restroom before the lesson was over and like missed that detail of the story. I'm so thankful that over, over Sonic, we firmed that up. You know, what'd you learn about? Oh, Abraham killing his son. Almost killing his son. What? It was just a beautiful moment of, of, of revelation there. That's the story. It's called the Akedah. Uh, uh, in the Jewish tradition, it is the binding of Isaac. Genesis chapter 22. We're going to read the whole chapter because how can you not? Uh, it'll be on the screens. It's in your Bible and it's also online. So let us hear the word of the Lord. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him 
and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, uh, Father Abraham, uh, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, um, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they had come to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies and by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessings for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. One of my favorite scenes in Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, Lord of the Rings, is when the Fellowship, this group of nine, uh, are going through the mines of Moria. We're not going to cover the entire story of the Lord of the Rings, but you know, like there were nine of them. And they took, they're taking the one ring, the, power, the ring of power, and they're going to destroy it in the fire of Mordor. And they're traveling in the mines of Moria, and there they lose their way. And there they notice that there is a creature following them. Gollum is following them. And uh, Gandalf and Frodo have this exchange. They have this dialogue as they're staying there. Of course, uh, those of you who know the story, right? Bilbo, Frodo's uncle, got the ring from Gollum. That's how the ring came in their possession. So Gollum has been following them. And Frodo and Gandalf have this conversation. I will try not to do it in, in, in Gandalf's voice. It's really hard to not do it in Gandalf, but I won't. It's a pity. So he's looking at Gollum and, he goes, and, and Frodo says, it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. Pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise 
cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play yet, for good or ill, before this is all over. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. Frodo replies, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. Gandalf replies, so do all who see to live, to live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. Instead of traveling through the mines of Moria, Abraham and Isaac are traveling the mountains of Moria. And there's this moment of discernment. and He's going to where God will show him. And just for the record, for those who are watching online, specifically for Jason Smith, who is not here today, they're entertaining someone in their home, so he can't be here this morning. Jason Smith is an expert in Lord of the Rings. And I just have to say, that conversation that Frodo and Gandalf have is early in the book. It's not in the Mines of Moria, but it is in the movie where that happens. Just so the nerds of the world will not send me hate mail, I'm well aware that it's in a different place in the book. You're welcome, Jason Smith. Okay, now that the footnote is over, we continue. They're going up the mountain of Moria, this journey, and there's this moment of discernment, and they're not sure. We don't get any inner dialogue of Abraham. What is Abraham thinking? This is a, this is a troubling story, the binding of Isaac. And wrapped up into this drama are questions of faith and ethics and trauma and even God's own omniscience. God says, don't harm the child. Now I know that you fear God. Now you know? Was me leaving my family behind not enough? Was me kicking Hagar and Ishmael out in the wilderness? Was that not enough? Was me arguing for the safety of Lot over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah? Was that not enough? Now you know? that I'm faithful? What do we know? What did Abraham know? It is troubling. It is ambiguous. And that is on purpose. So let's take a walk with Abraham and Isaac for a moment. Yeah? God calls the faithful Abraham, or the almost faithful Abraham, to sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac, far off on a mountaintop. And there's an interesting thing. He goes, take your son. And you can almost hear Abraham say, well, which one? Your only son. I have two of them. Your beloved son. Oh, Isaac? Take Isaac up the mountain to where I will show you and offer him as a burnt sacrifice, a burnt offering. That is gruesome a burnt offering is. There's not supposed to be anything left for a burnt offering. The story leaves us with troubling questions about God's will, questions we feel compelled to solve, but it only gives birth to more questions. It's like a ballet. This story's like a ballet. The, the, the movements are definitive. Pelier down stage right. 
relevé. But there's no dialogue. So we have to fill in the gaps as we watch these performers playing this story out. What is Abraham thinking? What does he know? But through patient reading, there's an intriguing story that happens. This dance between Abraham, Isaac, and God seems to defy ethics and, and suspend any type of moral rule. Now, there's one school of thought that says whatever God does is our definition of good. And I wrote about that and what makes a hero. We wrestle with that. What makes a good guy a good guy? What makes a bad guy a bad guy? Where does our sense of, is it that what God does is good or is it that God does good things? So there's one school of thought that, well, it doesn't matter. If God tells you to do it, by definition, that means it is good. Then there's another school of thought. This is another school of thought that God, through grace, has incorporated us into part of that discernment. And we don't have to go very far out of the story of Abraham to realize that when Abraham, when, when God says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal what I'm going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham says, wait a minute. He stands before God and says, wait a minute. Is that just? What if there are 50 people, 50 righteous people who are in, who are in Sodom? Are you going to destroy it? Abraham bargains and argues with God in God's own sense of justice. And in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus talks about whatever you bind and loose on earth, we bound and loose in heaven, maybe through grace, God has incorporated us into part of that ethical decision-making. That's another school of thought. Let's take a look at a painting. Rembrandt, master, painted in eight, uh, sorry, 1635, uh, what is called the Binding of Isaac. Uh, and this is more or less what is a common picture of what happened in that story. And it is striking what Rembrandt chooses to portray. Isaac is faceless. It's only his torso that is illuminated. The knife is in Abraham's right hand and it is coming down and as if the angel swoops in to knock it out of his hand. Abraham looks surprised. I mean, that's why the knife is falling is because the angel with so much force knocked it out of his hand. Abraham, Abraham, don't hurt the child. And this is the picture that I'm assuming many of us understand when we think about this story. We don't know what Abraham is thinking. It's rather ambiguous. We don't know whether Isaac was a willing participant. All we know in terms of inner dialogue or thought is that the story begins by saying, God tested Abraham. And that is crucial to this story. Have you ever been driving around in the radio? Well, my aux cord has been broken for like five years, so I still listen to the radio. <laughs> so uh, for those of us who listen to the radio in the car, and you're driving around and you hear someone come over the, the radio station saying, this is a test by the Emergency Broadcast Association. This is only a test. Right? Why does it say that? Because they don't want you to wreck your car. They don't want you 
to duck and cover. They don't want you to break the glass and press the big red button. This is only a test. This text is not so much about the ethical dilemma of whether or not God tests people. Because if we play that out, what if Abraham failed? What if Abraham slaughtered Isaac? Does God say, oh, well, you failed. What? Whoa, 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 whoa. I almost threw up in my mouth just then. <laughs> Robert Gallant. Okay, he pressed the wrong button. Give me, give me a second. Whew, okay. This isn't about God testing people. Oh yeah, Jack, boom. Let's try that on for size. Okay, now I'm nervous for the rest of this sermon. Okay, here we go. It's not so much God testing people as much as much as it is the redactor of this story who's saying like, hey, 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 before you go any further in this story, this really difficult story, I want you to understand this is a test. This is not command. Earlier in Genesis chapter 12, it says, Abraham, go, leave your family, go to where I'm showing you. It doesn't say that this is a test for Abraham. The redactor of the story, the one who compiled this, wrote it down over oral tradition and many, many, many years, is saying like, hey, hey, before you, before you read any further, I want you to know that this is only a test. So the obedient Abraham rose early in the morning and he set out with Isaac and two other servants. Abraham tells the two servants, this is curious, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and we will come back to you. Does Abraham really think that that's going to happen? If Abraham is convinced that Isaac will come back to him, is it really even a test of faith? Could it be that Abraham is lying? We will come back to you. Keep in mind, if Isaac is strong enough and old enough to carry the wood up a mountain, he is old enough and strong enough to run away from a hundred-year-old man. Stay here, the boy and I are going to go worship, and we will come back to you. Curiously enough, that doesn't happen at the end of the story. Only Abraham comes down off of the mountain. And the two men who were there didn't bother to ask why. And apparently neither did Sarah, because when she comes home, when he comes home, Abraham comes home alone. And the next thing we hear is that Sarah died. Could it be that Sarah died of a broken heart? Wondering why Isaac didn't come home. We don't know. It is ambiguous. While on this journey, Abraham and Isaac have their only recorded conversation in the entire Bible. Isaac said, Father. And again, Abraham says, here I am. It's a really great question. The fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham's response exemplifies the ambiguity of this story. 
Now, we don't have the same kind of punctuation in Hebrew as we do in English. But it big time matters whether you're putting a comma in that sentence or a hyphen. The Lord himself will provide the lamb, my son. That's a comma, right? That's peaceful. That means don't worry about it. The Lord provides. You put a hyphen in there or a colon? Wait, is, is Afton here? I don't know what I'm supposed to put, a colon, hyphen, something. The Lord himself will provide the lamb, my son. Well, that's a different meaning. Which does Abraham mean? We don't know. It is specifically ambiguous. We should be reading this at the edge of our seat. What does Abraham mean? Is God going to provide a lamb? And if Abraham knew that God would provide a lamb, that's not much of a test. It's like Jonah, right? Jonah, the Lord says, hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh uh, and convert the people. And, and, and by the end of it, God forgives all of, of Nineveh. And that's when Jonah says, I knew you were going to forgive them. That's why I didn't want to come out, come out here because you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast mercy. And, and I knew you would forgive them. I didn't want to come out here. If Abraham knew what was happening, is it really a test of his faith? Or is Abraham saying, the Lord will provide the lamb, my son, the one who God gave me is the one who I have to give back to God. And this is not, it's not, it's not an odd request. The history is a bit murky here. Why would God ask such a thing? Well, uh, in Exodus uh, chapter 13, it says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the Israelites of human being and animals is mine. Whew. Or is it Jeremiah chapter seven, verse 31, where God says, child sacrifice has never crossed my mind. That's why Bible study is fun. Because you have these tensions and these stories and these traditions and it's ambiguous and you wrestle with it, which is why we are people of faith. What does Israel mean? He who wrestles with God. Jesus came to Israel, the people of Israel. He who chooses to wrestle with these things. Abraham climbs the mountain and he binds his son, preparing him to be a sacrifice. And then there's intervention. God shows up, and this is the scene that Rembrandt portrays. An angel seems to swoop in and knock the knife out of his hand and says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, some have argued that this is the story where God finally says no to child sacrifice. And again, history is a bit murky on that. So what kind of test was this? Let's look at Genesis 18 for a second. Let's back up a little bit. And this is Abraham. I've mentioned it a little bit, but I'll, I'll read it to you. This is Genesis 18, verse 16 through 26. Then the men set out from there and they looked towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. 
No, for I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing right here it is by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave is their sin. Remember on our first Sunday, what is the sin of Sister Sodom? It's in Ezekiel chapter 16. She had plenty and did not aid the poor. If it was a different sin, then Ezekiel missed a grand opportunity to write that down in detail. What is the sin of Sister Sodom? She had plenty and did not aid the poor. God said, I must go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Here again, curiously, here is God saying, I have to go check this out to make sure. Now you know? What do you mean now you know? Is heaven that far? It's a curious story. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away, the, sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham is standing before God. God tells Abraham what he's going to do. And Abraham pushes back and says, that doesn't sound like justice. Could this be the test? When Abraham was faced with the destruction of Lot, who was living in Sodom, he bargained, he argued, he pushed back. And when God says, go sacrifice your son, he does none of the like. How curious it is what we choose to argue and bargain over. And what? We choose not to. Maybe that was the test. Maybe the test was for Abraham to say, Lord, we just covered this in chapter 18. What are you doing? This is not right. This is not just. This could also be a story reminding us that sometimes we can be so preoccupied with pleasing God that we forget about the people right in front of us. And that's the clue in the angel's intervention. Do not lay your hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Friends, it does not say that a ram appeared in that moment. It says that Abraham looked up and noticed it and saw it which suggests that it was there the whole time, or at least long enough to get caught by the horns in the thicket. It seems as if Abraham was so blinded with obedience that he did not notice that, the, that when he said, the Lord will provide the lamb, that he was speaking truth. 
In other words, if you, if you think following God means that you sacrifice your child, at the very least, look up. There may be a lamb caught in the thicket. If we think following God means that we sacrifice our children, at the very least, let's take Abraham's lead with Sodom and argue and question and bargain and put up a fight. The Lord did indeed provide the lamb, and that lamb said to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, we are to be obedient to the will of God, of course. And if we feel following that means sacrificing anyone other than Jesus on the cross, then we should stop, we should look up, because we may be missing the ram that is right in front of us. Rembrandt painted this a second time, near the end of his life, 20 years later. Let's take a look. This is a very different picture. In the first one, Isaac was faceless. You can only see his torso. The knife was in Abraham's right hand. The knife was coming down, and the angel stopped. Here, Isaac is not bound He's kneeling patiently in his father's lap. Abraham is averting his eyes. The knife is not in his right hand. It's in his left. The knife is not downward turned in a motion to kill. It is turned upward. The angel's not swooping in to stop Abraham from doing what he thinks he is supposed to do the angel seems to be consoling. And Abraham doesn't seem shocked. He seems very sad. Almost as if the entire time he was waiting. Lord, I know you'll intervene. Lord, I know that you'll provide a lamb. Please save me and save my son. That is a very different picture than the one that Rembrandt himself painted earlier in his career. And it's because, well, well, and here's the question, well, which, which one is right? <laughs> I don't know. It is ambiguous. That was in 1655, near the end of his career. Isaac, in scripture, never talks to his father again. (laughs) Would you? Isaac does not come down off the mountain. We don't know if, well, we don't know. The scripture doesn't say that Isaac and Abraham ever even met again. For the rest of his life, this is a whole other sermon, a whole other series, Isaac exemplifies and, and, and expresses what we would call today post-traumatic stress. He's very passive. He is compliant. He's averse to any kind of uh, competition or argument. There's this scene where his son, Jacob and Esau, Jacob steals Esau's birthright and he like tricks Isaac, like he puts on like animal skins and he smells like his brother and makes, was, was Isaac tricked or was he so conflict averse 
that the last time he said no was on this mountain and he just can't can't bring himself if you deal with post-traumatic stress or you know someone who does this would make sense to you Isaac for the rest of his life wrestles with this Isaac had Jacob Jacob the trickster Uh, I hope when you read Genesis you start to feel better about your own family because it's generation after generation of people screwing up and doing really difficult things. I mean, here's Abraham and Isaac, and then Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob, who is the trickster, and Jacob was tricked by Laban over Leah and Rachel, and then Jacob has 12 sons. And what, do you know this story? Jacob, Jacob and sons, right? Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. There's Joseph, and boy, his brothers loved him, right? Joseph's like, hey, by the way, like one of the, the, I'd love to tell Joseph, like, Joseph, like, turn it down a notch, man. Because, like, here he is. He's like the second youngest. He's like, hey, I just had a dream that all of you are going to bow down and worship me. Right? Well, his brothers said, bet. And his brothers took him and left him in a pit to die. Who got him out of the pit and brought him into Egypt? Do you know who? Yeah, if, well, if you know Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, you say, oh, a hairy bunch of Ishmaelites. Ishmael. You know the one that Abraham sent into the wilderness to die? Ishmael's descendants take Joseph out of the pit and bring him into Egypt. And when you read that, when you come across that, you're like, Abraham's story is still alive. It's still at play. Genesis isn't finished yet. And these Ishmaelites, these descendants of Ishmael, bring him into Egypt and he becomes the second in all command of Pharaoh. And Joseph saves his people by being saved by Ishmael's descendants, the one whom Abraham left in the wilderness to die. This story of Abraham is very long indeed. And it is finally when Joseph, when Joseph in Egypt... When his brothers come and they're in a they're in a tight spot, there's a famine, and they come and and they're nervous because Joseph said, "Hey, by the way, you recognize this face? You better." But what does Joseph do? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Genesis chapter fifty. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Finally. The faith of Abraham is redeemed and reconciled through forgiveness. If you notice in the story, thus far in Genesis, there's not a whole lot of forgiveness happening. Hey, Adam, where are you? I don't know this woman you gave me. Hey, Eve, what happened? I don't know. The snake tricked me. Hey, Cain, where's your brother? I don't know. Am I I my brother's keeper? Hey, Sarah, you're going to have a kid, right? Oh, well, Hagar had Ishmael. I don't really like that. Let's kick them out. Jacob, Isaac, Esau, tricking, lying, deceit. And then finally, finally, Joseph, who has all of the power, finally at the end of the story says, I forgive you. And then he gives this prophecy that your people, our people, 
will one day go to the land that was promised to Abraham. It's part of Joseph's last words to them. The promise is still alive. And the promise was made alive through reconciliation and forgiveness of the other. There is promise, there is doubt, there's affirmation, and there is loss. And there's also reconciliation. This is why when we finally turn the page to the Gospels and we read Matthew, the first Gospel, the first line of the first Gospel, after this long tradition of what we call the Old Testament, the first line says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Son of David because he is a king, and son of Abraham because he is the lamb that the Lord provided. A kingship through sacrifice to finally reveal the everlasting love of God, the love that God has for us to remain our God through generation after screwed up generation after screwed up generation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.